The crime used for the 8th of April, 1886, includes Riot at St. Louis, shot dead by his coachman, churches burned, a fearful crime, and much more on this edition of A Year of Crime is reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. The riot at East St. Louis yesterday is much to be deplored. Notwithstanding, it is the legitimate outcome of the condition of the working classes. That condition is a flagrant and everyday wrong that urges and goads poor men to desperation. But in view of the good results that have hitherto attended on the efforts of the Knights of Labor to effect just and equitable comp- compromises, it is earnestly to be hoped that those now on strike at East St. Louis and elsewhere will bear and forbear for a little longer and trust to public sentiment to help them to a victory in their unequal contest with capital. Riots, if persisted in, can only lead to bloodshed, and that means the assistance of the strong arm of the law to help capital to a victory. It is not to be wondered at that a dangerous anti-foreign feeling prevails at Canton, as our dispatches on the third page inform us. The wanton indignity put upon the Chinese minister at San Francisco yesterday, coupled with the wholesale slaughter in Oregon, is sufficient to excite the people of China to the extreme of retaliation. Treaties solemnly ratified have been broken with impunity. The Chinese laborers have been robbed and shot to death by hundreds, and this without redress. What wonder, then, that the people of Canton are excited and threaten reprisals? If the Chinese are driven out of the United States, the 18,000 Americans now domiciled in and trading in China may reasonably expect to be driven out and to lose the trade now equal to $38 million annually, in which they have built up with so much labor and during many years. It is a poor rue that does not work both ways. The people of the United States are opposed to polygamy and desire to see it suppressed, but this, they will insist, must be done in a lawful, orderly, and decent manner. It is not necessary to insult women and force distress upon them to punish them with undue severity or jeopardize their health or their lives. It is unnatural to expect, and worse, to force a woman by fine and imprisonment to testify against the man she regards as her husband and who is the father of her children. And yet this is just what is being done, if our correspondent, whose letter we publish on the second page, is to be credited, and we think he is. The Edmonds Law has opened up in Utah opportunities for brutal deputy marshals, such as the people of the South were familiar with in Reconstruction days, and they are not slow to avail themselves of them. Some of these worthies seem to be coarse and brutal, and even cruel, and therefore unfit to be employed in the name of the United States. We do not want to repeat in this country the story of the Huguenots, but this is what we are hastening to in Utah, where the Mormons are being hunted like wild beasts, and and mothers and children are compelled to testify against husband and fathers. Can't Mormonism be suppressed without the assistance of crime? Shot dead by his coachman, San Francisco, California, April 7th. R.S. Benham, superintendent of the Copper Queen Mining Company, was shot dead yesterday by his coachman, Fred Sweet. The murderer was arrested. No cause is assigned for the act. Mrs. Benham is utterly prostrated by the event. Riot at St. Louis. All the yards cleared by the strikers, who are determined that no work shall be done until differences are adjusted, a possibility that the engineers may join. The Knights of Labor in the Strike interview with one of the leaders. St. Louis, Missouri, April the 7th. 
the state of affairs which has existed in East St. Louis for the past week was suddenly broken today by a riot. A large crowd of strikers, numbering over a thousand men, formed about noon at the Relay Depot and headed by the leaders of the strike in that city, marched to the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad Depot where a number of platform men were at work. No guard of police or deputy sheriffs had been stationed there, and the employees were easily forced from their position. Thence the mob advanced upon the Vandalia yards where a few deputies were on duty who ordered the men back. They refused and made a rush, bearing the officers down, and swarmed through the gates into the yards and forced all the employer, employees at work out of the yards. From this place they marched to the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy yards where a similar scene was enacted out. All the employees forced out. The men then rushed on to the Chicago and Alton Yards, and upon arriving there were met by a strong force of deputy marshals armed with Winchester repeating rifles. They ordered the mob back and called upon them to disperse. This the crowd refused to do, and upon attempting to rush through the gates, the marshals brought their rifles to their shoulders and threatened to fire if the crowd advanced. This cooled their ardor somewhat, and they turned back. Nonetheless determined, nonetheless determined, however, that there should be no work done in that city while the Knights of Labor are still on the strike. The deputies remained on guard at the Alton Yards, fearing a second attack upon that point, while the strikers proceeded to the Catro Short Line Yards, whither they are now, 12.30 o'clock p.m., marching. All the yards deserted. 2 p.m. Upon arriving there, the mob found their way unobstructed, and by the same means employed at the other yards, forced the men at work there to leave their positions. The mob then dispersed, having accomplished their object, but not before calling a meeting of all strikers to take place at 2.30 o'clock at Flanagan's Hall, where resolutions will be adopted, declaring that no one will be allowed to fill strikers' places. All the yards are now deserted, and no business is being done in any one of them. Adjunct General Vance was a spectator of the actions of the mob this morning in forcing the men employed in the yards to quit work, and he has telegraphed the situation to the governor. It is generally thought that the situation has become serious enough to warrant the order ordering out of the militia to enable the railroads to carry on their business. The engineers will support the strikers. The engineers employed on the railroads entering in St. Louis declined to state the cause of Chief Arthur's presence in the city or its probable effect upon the extension of the strike to other departments of roads than those now involved. A prominent member of the Knights of Labor, however, when questions as to whether the engineers would support the strike, said, That is what they are going to do. You can depend upon it. Mr. Arthur, to be sure, is opposed to strike, but such pressure will be brought to bear that he cannot resist. He attended yesterday a meeting of the Brotherhood in St. Louis. He wanted to feel the Brotherhood pulse, as it were. He felt it and found that it was very feverish. Of course, the engineers are not in all sympathy with the strikers as yet, but the majority of them are, and the rest will be. Any way you can depend on it that the engineers will be out. On all the roads? Yes, on all the roads entering East St. Louis. I don't mean all the engineers, however, but only the freight engineers and some of the men running accommodation trains. We don't propose to interfere with the running of through passenger trains or any mail trains. How about the local trains? They will not be stopped. 
We recognize the fact that the masses of people need coal and that there would be great suffering among the people of the city if we were to deprive them of it, and we think we can force recognition from the railroads without causing much suffering among the working class. The engineers on the Missouri Pacific, will they go out too? Certainly. And violate their contract with the railroad company? No, not at all. You see, there is a clause in the contract that has been overlooked in the excitement of the strike. An engineer is not required to take out his engine unless the company furnishes him with a regular fireman, one who is recognized as a professional fireman by the Brotherhood of Firemen. You know the freight firemen have all gone out, and the company will have to get them back before they can require the engineers to take out their trains. And this article continues on about the strike, but that's all there is about the St. Louis riot. Lively Little Riot at Chicago, Chicago, Illinois, April the 7th. At least 1,000 men and boys gathered in front of Brook and Reich's furniture factory last evening and threw bricks and other missiles at the non-union workmen as they left work. The deputy sheriff who was guarding the property came out to take a look at the situation and the crowd began throwing eggs at him. He went inside and the crowd yelled and talked some of setting the factory on fire. Just about the time the situation began to assume a work-like appearance, the Chicago Avenue patrol wagon appeared and the mob disappeared, with the exception of G. Willis, John Thalman, and H. Hagerfold, who were taken to the station. On the way over, the wagon was saluted by the cries of, quote, rats from the windows and doorways. Fires at La Crosse, La Crosse, Wisconsin, April the 7th. At 2.30 this morning, a fire broke out in the business center of the city and Gantz Block, which was damaged to the extent of $42,000. The wildest excitement prevailed, the citizens believing there was an organized attempt to burn the city. The fire in the lumber district yesterday caused a total loss of $562,000 with an insurance of $60,000. Plot to blow up the Tsar, St. Petersburg, April the 7th. Just after the train carrying the Tsar and Tsar Arena to the Crimea had passed Charkov, four men who acted in a suspicious manner were arrested on the railroad tracks at that place. It is supposed that they had been engaged in a plot to blow up the train. A fearful crime. A drunken brute murders his wife and child. St. Francis, Arkansas, April the 7th. This town was the scene last Sunday of a most horrible crime, and it will only be owing the extra diligence on the part of the officers if it is not followed by summary punishment. For some time there has lived in the community a laboring man named William Ellis with his wife and two-year-old child. They came from southern Illinois, but beyond this not much is known of their antecedents. Ellis was a drinking man, and when under the influence of liquor was known to be abusive, on Sunday, he was in an unusually vicious mood and kept up all day his inhumane treatment of the woman. Late in the afternoon, she sought relief in flight and started for a magistrate's office to procure a warrant for his arrest. He followed and, when near the office to which she had started, fired at her with the Winchester rifle, the ball first striking her on the wrist, then passing entirely through the body of her child, which she had in her arms, then penetrating the body of the mother, inflicting a mortal wound. The child died in a short time. A coroner's inquest was held and resulted in a verdict in accordance with the facts as stated above. The murderer was promptly arrested and hurried off to jail at Boydsville to save him from lynching. 
The next section of the paper is titled City News. For stealing an overcoat, Robert Hall received a six-month sentence yesterday. John Cates, who stole $7.50 from H. Lindemann, was sentenced to six years in the penitentiary yesterday. And that's all the crime news for the 8th of April, 1886. Please join me again for another episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.